So we'll begin this evening's talk in a little bit of an unusual way with a a few moments of closing your eyes and visualizing and or feeling that you're sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama 2,500 years ago. Towards the end of that long and now very famous night under the bow tree. And after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of greed, aversion, and delusion at Siddhartha Gautama the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and his courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by these words, What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here? What makes you think you have the right to be sitting where and how you are? Just who do you think you are anyway? The Bodhisattva, the just about to be Buddha, balanced with the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and a penetrating sense of investigation that was accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy. (coughs) Siddhartha Gautama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place. In response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisattva, with his amazing (coughs) grace, he just simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated. 
never again to have any power over the Buddha. And so we sit, all of us here, and maybe not always quite exactly like the Buddha sat on that night 2,500 years ago, but we sit and we practice with sincerity, with determination, at home and here in retreat, with dedication and aspirations often very clearly felt and known. And as we practice, the particular qualities of heart and mind that were all so perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree, as, as we practice, these capacities of heart and mind continue to develop, deepen, and mature within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually, that this happens if we keep on practicing. This evening, with part one of a two-part talk, we'll begin exploring the quality or the factor of mind that the Buddha said it was like a precious gem. Mindfulness. Exploring mindfulness from the standpoint of it being an essential factor of awakening. With this evening's talk particularly oriented towards mindfulness of the body. When the Buddha speaks about mindfulness as being like a precious gem, He tells us that it's supported by seclusion, dispassion, and renunciation. The very conditions we have here on retreat. Mindfulness along with concentration are really the key factors for the mind, the heart, to ripen into relinquishment. Relinquishment in this case meaning the letting go into awakening, letting go into liberation. So this uh, particular factor of mindfulness. I often uh, think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother, the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's the factor that gives birth, we could say, to all of the other factors necessary for awakening. And the Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being the chief. So maybe a kind of male-female way of speaking about it. We could say that mindfulness is the chief mother. And when it really begins to be established in us, it's the factor that lights up all of the inner and outer phenomena that we experience, as well as offering us the greatest protection in this life. In Pali, the word for mindfulness is sati, 
And sometimes that's translated as memory or to remember. To, and breaking that word down, to remember, 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 reconnect. To connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind. I think for many of us, at least at times, we forget to be mindful because of our very strong habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly, freshly, and purely connect to the present moment's experience, but rather remain resting in our habits, remain resting in a kind of inertia, Years ago, in a Dhamma discussion with friends, uh, one, of these, uh, one of these friends asked, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? And I think that's a, a very good question. And these days, uh, a, a really good question, because uh, mindfulness is a pretty common word these days. And because of its commonality, it's a good thing that it's a common word, but also uh, because of its commonality, its common usage, some of its depth and some of its potency is dissipated. So the question, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? The great intimacy of mindfulness This moment's experience is this, just this much. Absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing our body and mind. Meaning, absolutely believing what comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, concentrated, direct, and immediate mindful awareness in relationship to the experiences that come in through each of the six sense doors. Being receptive to what is without the forethought of concepts, past experiences, or ideas of how we think it is, or how we think it should be, or or could be, or will be. Krishnamurti said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it, and moving from innocence to innocence. In Zen, this uh, receptive state of mindfulness is sometimes called the don't-know mind. With this great intimacy of mindfulness, opening the door to understanding the truth that sometimes appears so clear and so simple that we can hardly believe it. The Buddha's mindfulness asks us to not remain resting in our habits, to not remain resting in a kind of inertia but to really meet the experience of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy, to come really close and see how it is. 
Mindfulness doesn't kind of float or skim along the surface of things. It connects, going right into the object. And yet at the same time, it's not a sticky or a fixed connection. Mindful attention is a clear, fluid connection that lights on an object just long enough and just deep enough to really know it. It's this flavor of attention that allows for a penetrating investigation and a clear comprehension of whatever it connects with. Mindfulness can be called the active aspect of awareness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And I'm, I'm going to repeat that. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And at its best, a purely receptive relationship to whatever phenomena is presenting itself in the present moment. And of course we pay attention to a whole range of experience, including things that we usually do quite mechanically. Breathing, walking, hearing, the process of eating, picking things up, putting things down, thoughts, various states of mind, etc. We pay attention to things that are pleasant and experiences that are unpleasant. Experiences that are maybe wonderful and easy to pay attention to as well as things that are more difficult to give our attention to. We open to all of it. No parts left out. The very stuff of our lives is our path to liberation. It's not the, well, I, I could be really mindful if only I wasn't so restless. Or maybe uh, if I didn't feel so much anger, I could be really mindful. Or if I wasn't sick, I could be mindful. Or I could be really mindful if I felt better and wasn't so caught up in thought or wasn't so attached to uh, pleasure or so attached to beauty, then I could be really mindful. It's not that. All that we need to be mindful of, actually. This factor of mindfulness is about living in the action. Living in the action of the body, the mind, and the heart living in the present moment's experience. In a sense, we forget our self. In a sense, we lose our self, so to say, in what is. And so there's just what is, without anything added or needing to be added, and without taking anything away or needing to take anything away. With mindful awareness, we have the possibility of not thinking, 
I'm doing this or I'm doing that. The moment we think that I'm doing this, we're creating or recreating a sense of a separate self. Creating a separation, a, a disconnection from the reality of the way things really are. And living then in an idea. The idea of I, the idea of me and mine. Instead of living directly in the action. Sometimes I think of mindfulness as magic. Not the magician's magic, of course, that uh, creates an illusion and then pulls us into that illusion, pulls us into that delusion. The magic of mindfulness and the great beauty of mindfulness is that it takes us out of the illusion, out of delusion, directly into reality. Without it, we're bound. We're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things and then caught again and again and again in our reactivity to these assumed, meaning not clearly seen, appearances. The result being that we unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality. The Venerable Analayo puts it this way in his book, uh, Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. Venerable Analayo says, The element of non-reactive watchful receptivity in sati forms the foundation for Satipatthana as an ingenious middle path which neither suppresses the contents of experience nor compulsively reacts to them. And he goes on to say, one of the central tasks of sati is the de-automatization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. Sati thereby leads to a progressive restructuring of perceptual appraisal and culminates in an undistorted vision of reality as it is. He says, the technique of simple recognition constitutes an ingenious way of turning obstacles to meditation into meditation objects. Practicing in this way, bare awareness of a hindrance becomes a middle path between suppression and indulgence. Important aspects of sati are bare and equanimous receptivity combined with a broad and open state of mind. And then he says, as a mental quality, sati represents the deliberate cultivation and a qualitative improvement of the receptive awareness that characterizes the initial stages of the perception process. No matter who we are, 
where or how we live. I think it's uh, quite uh, safe to say that all of us want happiness. All of us. And I think that most of us want much of our life experience to be permanent, to, to be ongoing, or at least to be deeply fulfilling. Or we want life to suit our passing fancies, our expectations, and our heartfelt and our deepest desires. And consequently, most people spend much or maybe most of their time and energy trying to find this, trying to satisfy these deep desires through external experiences. So, for instance, by getting this and that, or him or her, doing this and that, going here and there. Or we try to find, we try to get ongoing contentment and fulfillment through this constantly changing world of the senses and through the myriad and constantly changing relationships that go on throughout our lives. As many of you know, at least conceptually, none of this really works. The Buddha spoke about happiness beyond our ordinary experience of pleasure. He said that happiness arises when we're mindful. And so we take the Buddha's words to heart and look closely, very closely, to see, feel, and know our experience directly. Our meditation practice, as we know, cultivates mindfulness. A focused mindfulness happens when we really, truly, and fully bring our attention to the present moment. And so we practice this over and over and over again, moment by moment by moment. Our practice is one of deep intimacy really the deepest intimacy with our own experience, which as practice develops, as it expands and as it matures, it becomes an intimacy, a kind of profound intimacy with all beings, all things. The direction of mindfulness is to be aware intimately aware of it, whatever it is in the moment. To see and know what is. To really see it, truly. How is it in this present moment? And this present moment? And this present moment? How is it? This is really the basic foundation in all forms of Buddhist practice. How is it in experiencing the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, touch? How is it in experiencing the mind? How is it really? 
not what you hope it is or not what you want it to be or imagine it to be or don't want it to be. A mindful relationship to our present moment's experience is what allows clarity and really true understanding, insight, to arise, to really just simply and naturally arise, which it inevitably does. We don't need to do anything to make it happen. The truth is actually not very far away at all. It's right here, ever-present, immediately close and always and everywhere, right here, right now. And it's really our greatest protection. A number of years ago I was teaching a weekly class at our local meditation center, a class on mindfulness. And each, uh, the beginning of each class, once a week class, uh, students would come in and share something from their week, experience from the week in relationship to what we were uh, talking about and looking at and uh, studying in our class. And one evening, uh, one of the students came in And she said that that morning she had been watering her garden. And she said, although she'd watered her garden hundreds of times before, that morning it seemed that she was watering her garden for the very first time. And then she, her mind kind of took a leap and she said to all of us, how have we survived? so long without being mindful. Terrible things are decided and done when mindfulness isn't present. And that was really quite something to take in from her that evening. The Buddha Dharma is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart, In fact, if we're not bringing our full attention to the present moment, if we're not mindful, we're living at a distance from experience, living at a distance from life itself, really, which just, in fact, keeps the circle, the reactive cycle of conditioned habit patterns going round and round and round. We're kind of living like our computers, you know, you, pu- you push the button and out comes what's already in there. When our buttons are pushed, if we're not mindful, out pops the conditioned patterns, out pop the conditioned reactions. Another way of looking at this is that without mindfulness, it's as though we're living uh, life through binoculars that are out of focus. Our perspective, our perception is blurred. We experience life through the filters, we could say, of ideas, of preconceptions, of opinions, hopes, fears, judgments, and maybe similar past experiences. So, for instance, an experience that probably everyone in this room has had. 
you meet someone new for the very first time. And you don't uh, really uh, see them as they actually are. You see them maybe in relationship to your thoughts about them. So maybe how much you think you like them. Now you don't know them, you've never met them before. How much you are attracted to them or how much you think you don't like them or aren't attracted to them. Or maybe they remind you of somebody else. And so you see this new person in relationship to the similar qualities of this other person that you're thinking about. Or you see this new person in relationship to how you hope they are. Or maybe what you want from them. Or hope that you can get from them or hope that you won't get from them. With all of this, you're really not experiencing this person that you've met for the very first time just simply as they are. Have you ever gotten to know someone and found out that they weren't at all like your imagined ideas about them were? I'm sure we've all experienced that. Without mindfulness, everything we perceive is like this. Everything we see, taste, hear, touch, smell, think is immediately interpreted back to us without mindfulness, is immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thoughts and habitual patterns. Meditation practice grounded in mindful awareness is about bringing everything into a very clear, sharp focus to see things as they really truly are, as though for the first time, without judgment, and with a mind that's fresh, which is often called beginner's mind. And a story, some of you know this story, but it's a good one, so I tell it again. (laughs) When one of my grandsons was two and a half years old, I happened to have the great good fortune of being with him. His mother and I had the great good fortune of being with him the first time that he, in his whole life, that he saw a pine cone. So he saw it, he picked it up, he smelled it, he looked at it for a long time, turned it every which way, stuck it up to his nose, smelled it, stuck his tongue out, licked it all over, Stuck it up to his ears, (laughs) investigating, full investigation. We watched this with delight. And then, uh, as a good mother and grandmother are supposed to do, we told him, this is a pine cone. And he looked at us kind of quizzically, but repeated like a good boy should, pine cone. And then forgot about it and went back to his investigation, his very direct experience of pine cone, this fresh, open, beginner's mind. Something I've never forgotten was a great teaching. (laughs) And this is an attitude of mind that we can learn or maybe relearn to bring into our life as a whole. And it's transformative. It's transformative and potentially deeply healing. 
one definition of these teachings and practices is that they are the best medicine. The best medicine to make us well in the deepest and most profound sense. Well as in freedom from suffering, the suffering of confusion and anguish and fear, freedom from the ongoing wanting that stems from ongoing dissatisfaction, freedom from suffering. There are four domains of mindfulness or four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. So this evening, as I uh, mentioned briefly already, we'll explore the first of these domains, which is paying attention to the body in the body. Just the body as such. Not one's ideas about it uh, or interpretations of it, but the body in the body as it is. And of course there are many and varied and specific aspects of the body to notice and to give a very careful attention to. As everyone in this room is well aware of, one of our primary practice orientations to the body is mindfulness of breathing. The rise and the fall, the action of the breath. And I have to say because I think that sometimes there can be some misunderstanding about this. Breath as an object of mindful attention is not just a beginner's instruction, not just a beginner's way of practicing. The development of the mind and the understanding that's accessible through mindfulness of breath is potentially profound. In making the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly a basic ground of a concentrated and mindful attention, I personally have at times been deeply grateful and at times even awed at the depth and the breadth of the purification of the heart and the mind and what comes to be known and seen and understood with a simple and careful attention to the direct experience of breath. So now for just a moment, close your eyes. And let the attention drop into the breath. Mindfully absorb into the rising and falling in the abdomen. Mindfully absorb into this rising and falling without any self or with as little self as possible.
And just very simply notice, for instance, are you trying to control the breath? Is there any uh, manipulation of the breath going on? Maybe not. Maybe so. Noticing without judgment. Noticing without any self-recrimination. Just noticing. And without pride as well. In a moment of seeing clearly, there's often a sense of relief. As a friend of mine said, seeing is relieving. We might at times particularly notice each breath, each rising and falling, very directly. Notice it as movement, noticing it as a sensation, maybe as a vibration in the area of the body where we connect with the direct experience of the rising movement, for instance. Maybe noticing it right when it begins and staying with it all the way through to its end. And maybe actually noticing the ending, the sense, the cessation of the experience. and the beginning then of the falling movement. Or we may notice the in and out or rising and falling itself in a very simple way. Basically just this, which tends to cultivate an increasingly quiet and tranquil and peaceful breath as well as an overall body-mind calm and tranquility. The body in the body. Mindfulness, for instance, now of the four postures. Not our ordinary, everyday, quite casual way of noticing our bodily activity but a closer, more intimate, more ongoing and careful attention to the body in every position, standing, sitting, lying down, walking, and the various movements of the body in getting up and down, flexing and extending the arms and the legs, turning, lifting and carrying, and even bringing mindfulness of the body in the body to the experiences of falling asleep and waking. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone, a me, an I, behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement. Beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is 
in itself. Can standing be known just simply as standing? Sitting as just simply sitting? Walking as just simply walking? Without the layer of I am or the internal feeling of this is me walking or sitting or etc., etc. Once many years ago, Saida Upandita asked me, is there a woman or a man or a person when you're mindful of and noting walking, standing, sitting, or any bodily sensations? And for just a brief moment, I was really caught by the question, which in retrospect, I I think was a kind of test of my practice at the time. (laughs) But very quickly, uh, in presence with Upandita, there was a spontaneous reflection and then a response. No, there's no woman, no man, no anybody known. When I'm really directly connected with with, uh, a mindful and mindful of walking or sitting or whatever phenomena is happening, So, a good question you might ask yourself every now and then. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful awareness of the body in the body, and as you slow down more and more, you may begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experience arises out of. So, for instance, awareness of intention too, followed by an action or inaction. In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention, volition itself begins, where it starts from, and how how it feels in our body. I don't in some independent, mysteriously isolated way stand or not stand or sit or lift an arm or take a step. It's not mysterious or isolated. As we pay a more intimate, mindful attention to the subtleties in the actions of the body and the experience of the interrelatedness within the body and the body-mind relationship, we may, be, may begin to see and to understand the role of volition, the role of intention, and come to experience and know its arising and not take it personally. As this aspect of awareness of the body in the body blossoms, there's a very natural non-conceptual, intuitive understanding of the subtler causes of suffering that begin to take hold 
which can open our heart to an unimaginable expanse in relationship to all beings. How identified are you? How strong is the clinging to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena we call our body? One of my former students, uh, Roy, who was a very deeply dedicated practitioner right up into his dying moment, he died of uh, AIDS-related complications. I went and sat with him every day uh, in the hospital here in Taos for quite some time just before he died. And one afternoon as I was there with him and he was lying in his bed, there was not much left of his body at that point. He stretched his arm up overhead and he turned it very slowly, looking at it very carefully very intently, very mindfully, turning it around and around and around. Great interest, great mindfulness. And then he said in a very cool and very odd way, all he said was, wow. The form, the posture, and the movements of the body are totally dependent or interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions just as, for instance, does the afternoon wind or an early morning sunrise or the arising of anger or the sensation of coolness on the skin or the liking or the disliking of some experience or Roy's body being as thin and as light as a reed. Everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment. Choices are made, but in truth they too are always a product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear, unfettered, and intimate attention to the body, its movements, and the process of intention that we begin to directly experience this truth? The next establishment or domain of mindfulness of the body as a body that the Buddha suggests, actually uh, it's not really a casual suggestion. He, He never sort of suggested anything casually, but really a direction. Uh, from the Buddha, is giving attention to the parts of the body. And classically, as it's taught, all 32 parts of the body. (laughs) So hair, skin, muscles, bones, all of the various internal organs and fluids. And in your practice here, I'm uh, sure that you have noticed Uh, various parts of the body as they make themselves known. 
such as the intestine or the bladder and the heart, the lungs, maybe the liver, mucus, saliva, etc. But how often have you noticed them in a mindful way? This retreat offers you the opportunity to bring a concentrated mindfulness but unattached attention directly into the various parts of the body. How identified are you with the hair on your head? Or the lack of it? Or the hair on your body? How do you attend to the experiences of your intestine and the digestive processes therein? Or to a moment or many moments experience of the heart? How do you experience your skin? This bag of flesh that holds all the various contents of the body. How often do you experience your nails or teeth or saliva or sweat or any parts of your body or bodily experiences with what I like to call the extraordinary qualities of mindful awareness. A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non-self-identified kind of attention. Just the body in the body. Without the layers of ideas or interpretations or concerns about it. Just the body as a body. This can really be a very powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's conceptual idea of solidity and identification with one's own body and in relationship to other bodies. And some words from the Buddha. Abiding, contemplating the body as a body internally, externally, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a yogi abides contemplating the body as a body. So just consider for a moment, how do you identify yourself? I think for most of us, uh, if not all of us, a primary or a very large part of our personal identification is related to our body. We identify ourselves in good part through rupa, which is the Pali word that translates as material form or materiality. So considering this for a moment in relationship to yourself. I'm a woman or I'm a man. I'm thin or I'm fat or I'm not too thin or not too fat. I'm tall or I'm short or I'm of average height. I'm good looking, I'm handsome, I'm beautiful, I'm ugly, I'm plain, I'm attractive, I'm unattractive. I have dark skin, I have light skin, I have good skin, I have bad skin. 
my nose is large or too big or too small or I have a really cute nose. I'm wrinkled and old and weak or I'm young and strong and smooth-skinned and on and on and on and on it goes. With all of these uh, personal identities constantly changing over the years or maybe just within days or within just moments in our mind. Even though we engage tremendous effort and tremendous time and energy in clinging to these various identities. There's really no place to hang our identity hat, so to say, for more than a few moments, if that. No place to rest in these constantly changing relative perceptions and ideas of who we think we are. In relation to this, uh, one aspect of mindfulness that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies are essentially no different than any other form, no different than any other rupa. Our human form is of the same elements as any other and every other form. Nothing more, nothing less. bringing concentration and mindfulness to the practice of discerning these elemental characteristics of the body is potentially a kind of non-ordinary and very powerful way to begin to cut through the concept of the body being a solid and static entity and to help cut through the I am identification. The Buddha offered a very profound teaching and very specific practice in conjunction with this teaching. That if we really sincerely and seriously take it up, it can be a window, opening us to the direct experience, discernment and understanding of one aspect of ultimate reality. The ultimate reality of rupa, form one aspect of the reality of how it really is, one aspect of how or what this body is and every other form as well really is. The teaching and the practice is directly about discerning the four great essentials as it's sometimes called or the four great elements, earth, water, fire and air or wind, in directly experiencing the specific characteristics of each of these elements in the body. And I'll just list the elements and then we'll just experiment for a few minutes together with it. So the earth element, the characteristics of the earth element are hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. The characteristics of the water element are flowing and cohesion. And the characteristics of the fire element are heat or warmth or cool or coolness. And the characteristics of the air or the wind element are supporting and pushing. 
So I'd like to take uh, a few minutes and explore just a few of these characteristics together uh, this evening. And beginning by relaxing and bringing your attention to the rising and falling in the belly for just a few moments. And letting the mind settle and focus in this simple way. we'll start with pushing and begin by this is a little different than maybe some of you have experienced so begin by being aware through the sense of touch of the pushing in the center of the head as you breathe in and out so taking the attention up to the center of the head and noticing the through the sense of touch pushing as the breath moves in and out. It's subtle, but discernible. And if the pushing uh, of the breath in the center of the head isn't easy to discern for you, then try being aware of the pushing in the belly as it moves out with the breath, with the out-breath. Or the chest as it expands with breathing in. Excuse me, with the belly as with the in-breath, not the out-breath. Discerning pushing. Wherever there's movement, there's pushing. When you can discern this characteristic of pushing, let your attention really concentrate on it for just a brief moment until it becomes very clear in your mind. And now just take a few moments to bring your awareness to another part of the body nearby and look for pushing there. This can be done, of course, again and again in various parts of the body until wherever you place your mindful attention in the body, you can easily see and know pushing. In some places it will be quite obvious and in other places it will be very subtle. But it's present everywhere throughout the body.
And now letting go of the discernment of pushing and we'll experiment with discerning hardness. And we'll begin by discerning the hardness in the teeth. So just bite your teeth together uh, very obviously to yourself a few times and feeling how hard they are. And now relax your bite and feel the hardness of the teeth. They might still be touching, but you're not biting down. Feeling the hardness of the teeth. And when you can feel this, experiment with discerning hardness somewhere else in the body. It's anywhere throughout the body. And try a few different places in the same way that you did with discerning pushing. And please take care not to deliberately tense the body in this exploration. And now letting go of the discernment of hardness and we'll move to softness. And to begin, gently press your tongue against the inside of your upper or lower lip to feel its softness. And now relax your body and practice beginning to discern softness in other places in the body. It's throughout the body. And if you lose the knowing of softness, you can go back and press with your tongue again inside your mouth and then let go and discern softness elsewhere in the body. now letting go of softness. I know we're going quickly. You can go back to it at any time, another time. And we'll look briefly at heat or warmth, usually quite easy to see and to know. Heat or warmth throughout the body. 
and now coolness or coldness and a good way to while we're sitting here right now is to feel this is to feel the coolness of the breath as it enters into excuse me enters into the nostrils sensation of coolness there and then begin to discern coolness or coldness throughout the body All of the elemental characteristics that we've explored so far are known directly through the sense of touch. And the next two uh, characteristics that we'll just briefly uh, look at uh, are to some degree known by inference as well as through direct experience. And these are flowing and cohesion, the characteristics of the water element. So experimenting for just a moment in discerning the characteristic or the quality of cohesion in your body. Awareness of how the body is being held together by the skin, flesh, and the sinews. Blood being held in by the tissue and the skin, kind of like water in a balloon. Maybe you can have some felt sense of this. Without cohesion, the body, of course, would fall into many separate pieces and particles. The force of gravity, which keeps the body stuck to the earth, is also cohesion, which actually uh, may be very easily and clearly discernible at times. if we pay a mindful attention. And if cohesion still isn't clear experientially, then you can pay attention just to the qualities of pushing and hardness. Maybe in the rising movement in the belly. And eventually you may feel as though this whole body is kind of wrapped up in the coils of a rope. One thing that some people say they experience with uh, the perception of cohesion. Now just let this exploration go. How intimately, how mindfully are you 
connected to these most basic and universal experiences. This body in its elemental nature, really essentially no different than any other form. The last instruction from the Buddha in relationship to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse and maybe seemingly uh, not something we have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting such as this. But the truth of the matter is that there are many kinds of corpses around to observe in a place like this. The possibility of insects, maybe birds or other creatures, and certainly the corpses of plants and trees and leaves and flowers. All forms of life are mortal. All forms, all rupas are mortal. They have the nature to die and to decompose or just to deconstruct and decompose. So consequently, consequently it's, it's possible to observe this directly. I've been in retreat myself in various places over the years and at times quite purposefully observed the, uh, the dying process of flowers and grasses and continued over time to observe them go through all of the changes that things do as and after they die. And once when I was on a retreat with a few friends uh, on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, where we rented a house on the shore of the ocean for a couple of months to practice together, I had the great good fortune, or maybe uh, it's only good fortune in the world of Dhamma practice, but I had the great good fortune to come upon a dead seal that was lying on the beach. And so every single day for a month, I walked down to that body and I sat with it for a while, every day observing and letting in the process of decomposition and decay, which in this particular instance was happening uh, quite quickly because it was being helped along by the many seagulls who found the seal's decaying flesh to be very delicious food. This daily practice during that month-long retreat was really a a heart-mind-changing experience for me on many levels. Ajahn Sumedho, the abbot of Amaravati, or he's not anymore actually, he was the abbot of Amaravati Monastery until very recently, he's retired uh, in England. He's the senior Western monk in the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah. He tells about a time that uh, he was living in uh, the monastery in Thailand and he asked if he would be able to uh, uh, spend part of a day practicing in the city morgue. And because he was a monk, the authorities let him go in, though he said they were uh, quite reluctant to do so. He said that all of his sense doors, which included his conditioned mind, were fully challenged, or actually, he said, fully assaulted. He said that the first thing that hit him 
was the smell. He said, which nearly drove him to run out the door. But he just stayed very mindfully present. And he said, little by little, it became uh, tolerable. And then it became just a smell, just a scent. He talked about his long-standing and very deeply embedded assumptions regarding this package of the human form being completely undone in his mind and heart as he took in the various stages of decay that were all around him. And he mentions that at one point he looked up on the ceiling and saw all sorts of parts, as he uh, put it, uh, which he found at first quite puzzling. And then he quickly realized uh, that the bloated body that was right in front of him could explode at any minute. (laughs) Which he said he very dearly hoped it would not. (laughs) And it didn't. (laughs) He said that when he went back out onto the street after this experience, he saw people in a very radically new way and with a radically wide open heart. It isn't about being morbid or being strange in some way. All forms, all rupas, living and non-living, are mortal. And we're so attached to forms. Probably first and foremost, our own form. And of course, also all sorts of other forms. For many of us, our attachment is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant and often unrecognized desire for and attachment to. For instance, forms that please us. Besides our own form, forms that please us or forms that are beautiful to us or forms that are amusing or interesting to us or simply... uh, in relationship to familiar forms. And I think what actually is strange and amazing in a certain way is that fairly often we think and act as if we and they, the other forms, won't change or won't die which if we really begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting very closely, if we see it closely, we find that in fact it produces an almost constant state of subtle or not so subtle tension and stress in our body, our heart, and our mind. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be helpful towards cutting through the, this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through suffering. How do you know the body? How are you established in this first domain, this first foundation of mindfulness? I think it can be helpful to check in now and then, and see if you're practicing in ways that are really, truly moving you towards understanding, really, truly moving you towards insight, towards wisdom. 
and the real, also the realization of the heart qualities of metta and compassion. Practice that's subtly or maybe more overtly rooted in wrong ideas, maybe rooted in misconceptions or misperceptions, can become quite deeply rooted in the mind and accompany us along the way of our practice for many years. A good question you might ask yourself now and then is, am I looking in the right place and in the right way for the happiness that I'm seeking? Mindfulness is kind of like a treasure hunt. And within the framework of practice, we find the way. And because each of us has experienced specific and quite unique conditioning, the path and its fruits emerge in both universal and unique ways for each of us. We discover the treasures of the truth in perfectly natural ways through our own direct experience which is at the same time both personal and impersonal. As this great treasure hunt yields the healing and very beautiful and liberating treasures of the way of things. As an essential factor of awakening, we learn to really clearly know when mindfulness is established in us and we come to know when it's absent. The Buddha said, there's one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness, and to clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, and to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is this one thing? It's mindfulness centered in the body. In closing the talk this evening, I'd like to um, read a wonderful and uh, what I find inspiring instruction from the Buddha that we actually can offer ourselves anytime. It's called A Single Excellent Night, and it's from the Majjhima Nikaya, Sutta 131, in case you're interested (laughs) to look it up. Let me not revive the past, or on the future build my hopes, for the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night. It is in her, in him, 
the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. And let's sit together silently for just a moment. And may each of you have a single excellent night, maybe even tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.